listening to GP Life Hacks with Dr. David Land. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the GP Life Hacks podcast. I'm joined today by a very special guest, my sister, Dr. Esther Lamb. She's a GP registrar based in South Australia, and she's currently doing uh, some pediatrics terms at the Lyle McEwen Hospital in Adelaide to beef up on those uh, pediatric skills uh, before she hits the community, which is super important because, you know, lots of your patients in general practice or emergency medicine or, you know, quite frankly, in lots of different specialties will be not just adults or not just geriatrics, but also pediatrics as well. And from what the experts tell me, they're not just little adults from a medical point of view. So welcome to the show, Esther. Hi, Big Bro. Thanks for having me. (laughs) (laughs) No problem. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, So yeah, Esther, you're a GP registrar. You're doing some PED stuff. But other than medicine, you do some stuff on the side. Hey, you like to draw, you like to paint, and you also DJ as well, hey? Yeah. um, I like to draw comics on the side. Nothing published publicly yet. And yeah, I do a bit of DJing, Um, excited to be living out my high school dreams of DJing a K-pop gig coming up soon in Adelaide. (laughs) Hey, what's the coolest location either in South Australia or interstate that you've uh, DJed so far or not necessarily the coolest, but like one of the most memorable, one of the most fun for you? Uh, One of the most fun was at the beginning of my internship just before COVID hit. Um, I went to go do a solo show in Coolangatta on the Gold Coast. Uh, so I remember I like finished up the hospital, went to the airport, flew in, did the whole show. Then like the next morning, chilled on the beach and then flew back that afternoon because then I was doing the Sunday ward round the next day. Um, but yeah, Gold Coast, very nice place. Rate it. <laughs> sounds clutch. <laughs> All right, so pediatrics, uh, look, this can be quite a daunting thing because, yet again, they're not just little adults. And it may have been a while, uh, the time in between when you need to see a kid and the last time you did pediatrics on rotation or last seen a kid. Uh, so I'd be keen to hear your tips in dealing with them, certainly in my own practice, in uh, rural general practice. Two of the most common times a kid will bring, uh, sorry, not a kid will bring their parent. That would be quite bizarre. When a parent will bring their kid into the GP's office or into the emergency department of your hospital is when they've got some sort of respiratory complaint, I help my baby has a cough and I'm worried about them or help my baby can't breathe properly and I'm worried about them. Or the second thing is help my... F- baby or my child has a fever and I'm worried about them. Is that uh, common things that happen in your experience as well? Yeah. Um, I'm partway through a six month extended skills term doing pediatrics, um, based at the Lao Mac. And we do a variety of both emergency, the ward and neonates. So learning a lot of things and definitely in the ED, some of the most common presenting complaints is some sort of febrile illness. Yeah, absolutely. So I'd be keen to hear your thoughts on how to approach that. I mean, certainly it's very easy to feel a bit overwhelmed. uh, One, because you might not see kids all the time. And also number two, just nobody likes to see a sick kid. We all like to see well kids. Certainly approach I have uh, is when I see a kid, I just always have in the back of my head that there are four magical questions that you can ask about a pediatric patient and their background history. And that gives you a real feel going into it on what kind of kid you're dealing with. And those four magical 
questions and I'll keep uh, reiterating this in subsequent episodes and certainly multiple times in this episode is those four magical questions are number one, ask about medical conditions, which is pretty similar to taking a history from adult. Number two, definitely, definitely, definitely. And especially if we're talking about fevers like we are today, ask whether the child is vaccinated because uh, certainly that changes your differentials dramatically if you do find that they're not uh, vaccinated, they're potentially susceptible to illnesses like hemophilus and epiglottitis, et cetera, et cetera. Definitely. Question number three is just quite the, sim- the quite simple question of asking parents, you know, were there any problems with the birthing history? So there, were there any problems during picked up during the pregnancy itself? Were there any problems with the birth itself? Uh, was the baby born at term? Uh, and also, yeah, so those kinds of things. And then number four is just a quick screen of the milestones. Uh, and you can quite literally start off the conversation there by saying to the parent, you know, do you know what I mean by milestones? Lots of parents will do if they don't and say, oh, what do you mean? You can say some simple things like, oh, well, in terms of learning to crawl or learning to walk or learning to talk, do you think they did those things at the time that they were, you'd expect them to be or compared to brothers and sisters at the time that you expect them to be? Uh, and from those four magic questions, just to reiterate, past medical conditions, whether or not they're vaccinated, any birthing or pregnancy issues, and a quick screen of their milestones, you can just get a whole flavor of the situation, a whole perspective on the child even before you ask too many questions. Definitely. I ask that of every child, um, irrespective of what the presenting complaint is. It just gives you a sense yeah. of, is this a generally well child or are they vulnerable because, you know, they're like an ex-premature baby or they've got some other medical condition. Exactly. And when you get a bit practiced at doing so with every single kid, exactly as you said, you've done Esther, it actually doesn't take a whole lot of time to ask. It just rolls off your tongue after a while. Mm, Definitely. Um, Yeah. And that's why I thought as well, like, you know, reinforcing those questions and then some of the other sort of common approaches to common presenting complaints could be helpful for other people. Um, Because certainly when I started this pediatric term, I knew nothing. I have very limited experience with children, both socially and medically, because I'm (laughs) the littlest lamb. There ain't no babies in my life until recently. Um, And in medical school, I only did two weeks of pediatrics where, like, we didn't have many kids coming through for whatever reason. So, like, I'd never seen an asthma attack before this term. So yeah, that's why, I thought, and that's not uncommon, and that's yeah. no reflection on you. That's actually just pretty commonplace. Uh, yeah. So yeah, it's good to hear your thoughts on yeah. yeah how to approach that. So let's talk through things I wish I knew on day one of my term. So let's right. start talking with about febrile illnesses because it's one of the most common presenting complaints. Um, I guess the key things to note is the vast, vast majority are going to be viral infections. And the vast majority of those can be safely managed at home. So your role in ED is to figure out who might be having some of the more like red flag causes of um, fever. So bacterial illnesses that need antibiotics or um, two important autoimmune conditions to be aware of, which is Kawasaki disease. That's an autoimmune um, vasculitis um, that manifests as persisting fever in young children with some abnormal rash where like their skin kind of peels around the lips and the fingers and they can develop myocarditis and they need hospital stays for like um, steroids and immunoglobulin. Um, and the second um, autoimmune cause of fever that we should be aware of 
which we won't go into too much detail because it's an emerging condition, is PIMS TS, which is a post, um, it's an immune reaction after COVID. So usually two to six weeks after COVID and it can manifest as looking kind of like sepsis or Kawasaki type illness. Yeah, great. I really like that, Esther, because I'm a simple guy that likes algorithms and only has so much space in his brain at any given time. I like that algorithm. It's basically, there's a kid with a fever. In essence, I'm just trying to figure out, do you have a viral infection, which is not so dangerous, or do you have a dangerous thing like a bacterial sepsis or some significant autoimmune condition like Kawasaki's? I like that algorithm. Exactly. Yeah. Um. Your second role in ED, aside from identifying the cause, is to identify the severity of illness. Um, Because like I said, 99% they're going to be viral. Of those viral kids, most kids can go home, but some of them need to come into hospital. And the two main reasons for in-hospital care, because if you recall, we don't have antiviral medications. It's just supportive care. So the two supportive things you can do in hospital that you can't do at home is, one, if there are problems with breathing and oxygenation and they need oxygen, they're coming into hospital. Number two yep. is dehydration. So if the child can't drink, your other options for rehydration is either a nasogastric tube um, where we give hydrolyte directly into the stomach or an IV line, which obviously those things can't be done at home either. Yeah, got it. I like that algorithm too. So basically, do they have bacterial sepsis or some major thing like Kawasaki's? Yes, they need to come into hospital and stay in hospital. If the answer is no, do they need fluids or respiratory support? If the answer is yes, they need to come into hospital. Exactly that. Yeah, cool. So let's talk through how we identify these things. Um, I'll start with a caveat of we are not talking about infants under three months of age. The reason for that is infants under three months of age have a significantly higher risk of having a bacterial infection. And so therefore the guidelines and the assessment pathways and algorithms differ for them because they'll get a full septic workup. Sure. So we're talking about children older. Yeah. So basically what you're saying then is if I've got a child who's three months or less with a fever, I basically assume the worst and that they've got a bacterial sepsis until proven otherwise. Essentially that. You'll, you'll be guided by local yeah. guidelines, but essentially that. Yep. Okay, cool. Cool. So how do I approach these children? We'll start by talking through those main differentials again, and therefore what questions to ask on history and what things to look for in examination. Following that, we'll talk through which bedside tests to consider and then ongoing management, including what to do for children who are admitted and what to do for children going home. Sounds good. Cool. So let's talk about the main, like, you know, loci of infection for infants and children. Number one, number one, number one, number one will be upper respiratory tract. And remember that for children, unlike adults, this includes the ears. So you need to look at the ears. (laughs) Yeah, good point. Yeah. Uh, Number two is lower respiratory tract, i.e. pneumonia or bronchiolitis, gastroenteritis and the urinary tract. Those are sort of the four like most common places kids will get infections. Gotcha. Um, less common but serious infections to also consider will be skin, septic joint, the dreaded meningitis and cephalitis, as well as like generalized sepsis of unknown origin. Yep. And lastly, remember, we've got those two non-infectious autoimmune differentials to think about as well. So that's Kawasaki disease and PIMS-TS. Yep. So off the bat, 
Firstly is how many days have they had the fever? Because Kawasaki disease by definition is more than five days of fever. So if they've had less than five days of fever, you're good. <laughs> yep. One thing I've noticed, sometimes when you ask parents the history of like the timeline of events, they'll say like, oh, my kid's been unwell for a week or two weeks. Or sometimes I kind of like go up and down because I'm going to childcare and getting recurrent viral infections. And so when I first started, I was like, oh, this kid's been unwell for a week. Do all these kids, like, do I need to think about Kawasaki and do bloods on all of them? But I spoke to my peds, Reg, and they said what they do is they ask them, how many days have they been having a fever every day? And often you'll find they might have had a cough and runny nose for five days and they've actually only been febrile for two. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So it sounds like a bit of further exploration is needed any given, at any given time when you're trying to figure out how long the fever's been going on for. Yeah, exactly. So just find out how many days yep. have they been having daily fevers. If it's less than five, yep. you can sort of stop thinking about Kawasaki. Sure, got um, it. For PIMS-TS, I just asked like if they've had COVID before and when. Because yep. um, the time frame where you'll get PIMS-TS is usually two to six weeks after the infection. Sure. So that's those two out of the way. Let's talk about um, the questions about the infection. So we need to ask localizing symptoms. One thing I've found that's kind of funny about kids compared to adults is they'll often get gastrointestinal symptoms for respiratory viruses and vice versa. Have you noticed that as well, David? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I feel like I read or had a discussion with a pediatrician and the short answer is, you know, kids have got different immune systems to us. Uh, they're a bit less robust at that stage. They work slightly differently. So it's not uncommon that you'll have a kid uh, with symptoms, uh, infective symptoms involving multiple body parts just from the one virus, as you say. Yeah, like I'll get kids with, um, lately we've been getting a lot of influenza and then some of them, like their main symptom is vomiting. Um, and then they test positive for influenza A on the rest swab. Yeah, and the other common one that I've found in my pediatrics time is that, you know, a kid will have both GI symptoms like diarrhea uh, and then they'll also have respiratory symptoms as well. Inevitably, when you swab their respiratory tract, swab their nose, they'll come back with adenovirus, which is clearly the cause for both. Mm -hmm. Exactly. That being said, even though there's crossover, it's still important to ask about the specific localizing symptoms because it'll help inform what tests, if any, you want to do later? Ah, I guess the, the converse is also somewhat true. It's not impossible for the one child to have multiple infections of multiple different body parts uh, with different bugs that need to be treated differently. Yeah, make sure you ask closed questions about these specific localizing symptoms because I find parents will often forget because they focus more on the child being irritable or feverish or whatever. And so they won't yeah. tell you like specifically they've had a runny nose or a sore throat or cough unless you ask. Yep. Nor is it really their job. It's our job to get that information as yeah. the treating physician. Hey. <laughs> Certainly. For kids who are kindergarten age and older, I ask about dysuria because they should be able to tell you. For toddlers, I ask them if the urine in the nappy smells funny. To be honest, this hasn't been super high yield because people can't usually tell, but um, sometimes you do get like a positive answer. And then they can sometimes correspond with your dipstick result. Yep. I ask about vomiting and diarrhea. One, because it can help you figure out, like, could this be gastroenteritis? And two, um, if they're having high volume losses, that'll help you assess the severity of dehydration. Yep. One thing to think about is if there's vomiting without diarrhea, it could just be early gastroenteritis, but you should also ask some non-gastroenteritis questions. 
My main serious differentials for vomiting without diarrhea will be urinary tract infection as well as head trauma. Although admittedly a head a central cause of vomiting is rare. Yep. All right. So we've asked now about our questions about where's the source of fever. Now let's think about the severity. Mm. So remember, we're thinking about dehydration and oxygenation. Yep. Oxygenation, you'll find out more in terms of the physical exam. Uh, we measure their respiratory distress by tachypnea, increased work of breathing, any chest auscultation findings such as crackles or wheeze, and oxygen desaturation. Um, we'll talk about this more in another episode just because um, respiratory problems in kids is quite a vast topic. But essentially, sure. if any of the above things are persistently abnormal, they'll probably need further workup. Yep. In terms of dehydration, like we said, there's two options. Either the kid drinks themselves or you give them fluids via nasogastric tube or intravenously. You'll find more robust guidelines about dehydration, um, but some of the key ways of assessing hydration status will be um, lethargy and irritability, tachycardia, decreased urine output, and slow central capillary refill. Yeah, one thing I've learned is if the kid is crying tears, that's a good thing. They're hydrated. They can make tears. <laughs> Which is like the complete opposite uh, from people that are not being the kid's doctors. Hey, from our point of view as the kid's doctor, it's the best thing in the world if kids are crying. It's great. It means that their respiratory system is working. It means their hydration status is working. But, you know, certainly the opposite to if you're not trying to doctor the kid and you're just trying to get them to go to sleep, that's the worst thing in the world. Hey. Yeah. Yeah. Like, um, if they're crying and they're not desaturating, they're breathing good. And if they're crying tears, mm. they're hydrated. Um, there's something to be said of be a little bit wary of the child who's crying nonstop and can't be consoled whatsoever because that might be a sign of more serious illness. But, you know, kids, even if they have a mild cold, they're going to be more, like, grisly than usual. Totally. Yeah. Another way to assess fluid is I ask the parents about how many wet nappies and how many bottles the child drinks when they're well and how much are they had in the last 24 hours. This is part as well of my general advice to parents about when they should get their child seen. Kids will usually drink way more than the maintenance fluids requirements, but the broad advice that most hospitals will give parents and like patient handouts will be like, if your child's having half the usual intake or half the usual number of wet nappies, they warrant medical review with a GP or the emergency department. Yeah, I like that. That's really easy to remember, half and half. Good. Yeah. So we've done a history and exam. Now let's go on to sort of what's your first few steps of management and um, assessment. So let's say we've seen a two-year-old kid. They're generally well. They're immunized. No significant perinatal history. They come in three days of runny nose and cough, two days of fever. They've come in today because they're a bit more unsettled and drinking less. Now what? Yeah, good question. Look, right, right off the bat, I think, and this is something that took me a while to realize, even in general practice, just the same as any other area of medicine, although you may not actually say it out loud, everything starts with your doctor's ABCs, doesn't it? 
uh, with any patient ever, you got to check for danger, see how responsive they are. And then thereafter, just do a quick screen for their airways, breathing and circulation. That will be, sort of dictate how you treat them. Yeah. So this kid, we've seen the mildly dehydrated, they're yep. a little bit tachycardic, but they're maintaining the airway, they're maintaining their SAS. Their nose is a bit congested, but there's no increased work of breathing. Yeah. So now what? One thing I will tell people is um, tachycardia in kids is both an important mark of illness severity, yep. but it's also like not the worst thing ever because kids will become tachycardic for quite benign causes as well. Yeah. So, for example, like the three most common causes of tachycardia will be pyrexia, like the high temperature, mm. dehydration, and emotional distress. So sometimes a kid will come in and like the first of the obs once they're in the ED cubicle is like the heart rates in the purple zone, like 180 when the normal range is like 140, but they're otherwise looking pretty good. You don't need to rush and like, you know, Merkel them like you would an adult necessarily. Sure. If the kid's otherwise looking pretty okay. All right. Good to know. So in terms of my like first steps of management, what do we do? We need us, let's say like for this kid, we've talked about the two-year-old. Sounds like they've got a viral erty. Yep. And the bit tachycardic, which is a little bit concerning. Yeah. Doesn't sound like there was serious bacterial infection or Kawasaki's or whatever. Yep. So now we're just assessing what's the severity of the illness. Do they need to come into hospital or go home? Yeah, right. So that's, are they dehydrated or is oxygen a problem? Yep. So what do we do? We're going to correct those three factors for, you know, causes of the high heart rate. And if the heart rate goes down, great, they're probably not that unwell. If the high heart rate persists despite resolving the fever and improving hydration, we need to start considering other more serious illnesses. Yeah. So the way we're going to do that is we're going to give the kid some PRN paracetamol and also consider um, neurofin. We're going to do what's called a trial of fluids and we're going to leave the room and recheck the OBS later when the kid is less distressed from us having poked them and like put the like otoscope in their ears and stuff. Sounds sensible. The reason why the Panadol is helpful as well is not only are you correcting the fever, but you'll find, I don't know if you've noticed this, David, but sometimes when a kid's pyrexic, they just look like really flat and like not great. Totally, totally. And so sometimes they just perk up, like even though the fever is not actually harmful to the child, like they just kind of brighten up when yeah. they're afebrile. And yep. I also find um, most of these kids have urties. They probably have a sore throat that they can't tell the parent about. Yeah. If you give them some Panadol, that's going to help with the sore throat and help with drinking. Now, I don't know about you, David, but before I did pediatrics, I was like, everyone keeps talking about a trial of fluids, but what the heck is a trial of fluids? Totally. There's so many things that when you first start pediatrics, it's like a different language. So yeah, absolutely been there. Yeah. So we're going to do a trial of fluids. And basically what it is, is you're going to get the kid to drink a certain volume per body weight in a short period of time and see if their body can tolerate the stomach distension or if they vomited it out. Right. Yeah, because we're going to see, is this kid dehydrated enough to need to come in for a nasogastric tube and IV fluids, or can they drink enough to go home? Gotcha. You'll see different guidelines about how trial of fluids are, but usually it's either like half a mil per kilo every five minutes. So like a 20 kilo child, give them 10 mils every five minutes. Yep. Or um, some people do two mils per kilo every 20 minutes. Yep. Basically, you're trying to see like, can they drink enough in an hour? both like short term to stretch the stomach and not vomit. And then also like to maintain, like continue maintenance fluids at home. Sure. Gotcha. 
If the kids had a history of vomiting, you can consider giving them a once-off dose of Andansetron to prevent vomiting. Um, sometimes with the kids not vomiting in ED, I've seen people give the parents a script for a single dose of Andansetron that they can take and like do in community if the kids otherwise well. Repeated doses of Andansetron are not encouraged because the rationale being if they're needing more than one dose, you should probably consider if there's like more sinister causes or if they need additional hydration because yeah. they're like vomiting so much to need more than one dose. Gotcha. From there, I sort of think about like, okay, the past travel is the drinking enough and then like, can they, what sort of fluids do they need to keep drinking at home? You guys might probably be familiar with calculating maintenance fluids with like the 42010 rule or something like, but I'm really lazy and bad at maths. So I just Google <laughs> RCH fluid calculator and then you input the weight and then it tells you what the maintenance fluids intakes per hour should be. That's a bit handy. We might put a link up for that afterwards. Yeah. If they're not having significant losses, like there's not, there's not much diarrhea or like only a little bit of vomit or something. Kids usually only need two-thirds maintenance anyway because when they're unwell, they retain water really well. Um, and the other thing as well is you want to avoid giving too much free water because, because they might have like SIADH and be prone to getting hyponatremic. Sure. What type of fluids or does it even matter? The best option is hydrolyte because it contains sodium and all those other electrolytes because like we said, kids might be prone to hyponatremia. If they're a baby and like they're still breastfeeding or like I'm like formula or like breast milk is also fine. And dilute apple juice, like half water, half apple juice can be quite good. I just tell parents don't just give only water because kids are quite, quite prone to getting hyperglycemic. Sure. And yeah, you don't want to give them SIDH and hyponatremia. Yep. So to summarize, we're giving them CPR and paracetamol and urofin in the emergency department and we're doing what's called trial fluids to see if the kid can drink enough and go home and then we're going to reassess the kid after that yep sounds good yeah so that's sort of the first steps you're going to do uh, do you have anything to add david no i don't think so all right cool well let's talk about investigations to consider unlike adults we don't routinely do blood tests just because you know kids are more, much more likely to have a viral illness than adults and like Adults, you know, you worry about like, could they get a kidney injury, blah, 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 but kids less so. Yep. Some investigations to consider, if it's respiratory, these days, post-COVID, we do respiratory PCR on everybody. Yep. If the child has very poor oral intake and vomiting prior to the hospital, um, you should do a finger prick blood glucose and ketones. Just because kids are more prone to hyperglycemia than adults, and it's helpful to assess if the kids taking in enough for ongoing home management. Sure. In school-aged children with dysuria or abdo pain, I do a urine dipstick to exclude UTI. Yep. In toddlers and younger, um, I'll do a UTI, like a dipstick, if they've got fever and vomiting without diarrhea. Got it. That being said, <laughs> catching a urine is often quite difficult from the, that age group, so good luck, parents. <laughs> <laughs> Other blood tests aren't usually indicated, like we said, for kids older than three months. But if needed, you've got the option of doing um, capillary bloods, which is kind of different to adults. So basically they do like a finger prick or a heel prick and you can get like a tiny amount of blood that you can run a gas on if you need. Mm. Or like you can, you can collect enough to do like your routine like 
CBE and electrolytes, but it's quite a painstaking process. But that that is an option if you really need bloods. But sure. You know, usually you don't need it because the majority are going to be a viral infection. So what's it going to show you? Like a slightly raised white cell count, a CRP of like 20 because they've got a viral infection. And the kid otherwise looks okay and is like euvolemic. You're not expecting or only mildly dehydrated. You're not expecting any electrolyte arrangement. Yeah. So that's why you really don't usually need bloods. If you're thinking the child's coming into hospital and they're unwell enough to need an IV fluids, you should take bloods then just one out of convenience because you're putting an IV cannula in anyway. And two, if you're going to be giving them like lots of IV fluids, it's good to know what their electrolytes are to make sure that you're replacing them appropriately. Yeah, okay. Some of the other blood tests to consider for kids coming into hospital is consider a blood culture if you're worried about bacterial infection. Um, and for younger children, sometimes you'll find the admitting peds reg will ask you to do a sterile site PCR. David, do you know what that is? No, no idea. (laughs) Tell me about it. Yeah, I was like, what the heck is a sterile site PCR? Basically, it's a blood viral PCR. So it checks your bloodstream for like enterovirus, herpes simplex, parechovirus, etc. Oh, so it's it's like a bacterial blood culture. But instead of checking your blood for bacterial sepsis, you're checking for major viruses in the bloodstream. Yeah, exactly. Gotcha. For SA practitioners, um, just letting you know, it's performed on an an additional EDTA tube. So that's a purple top. Sure. So if you're an ED and the admitting P's reg tells you like, can you send electrolytes, CBE, CRP, and a sterile site, you need to connect two purple tops and then the electrolytes tube. Ah, okay. Got it. So yeah, those are the investigations we should consider. Um, and, you know, a chest x-ray if you're worried about respiratory stuff. But we'll save that for the respiratory episode. Sure. Anything else to add investigations-wise, Stephen? Uh, no, I think that's pretty good. It In that sense, I know they're not little adults, but in that sense, there's a lot of similarity. Hey, just like when you've got an adult with a fever you're trying to get to the bottom of, you will do a urine culture, a blood culture, a chest x-ray. It's a similar kind of stuff. Septic screen, hey. Yeah, um, except that unlike adults, like most kids won't need a septic screen. Sure, yeah. Because, um, you know, like if you have an adult and they're like febrile, you're going to do the full bloods, the CRP, the culture and things, whereas we're reserving it for the kids who we think, mainly if we're worried enough that they've got a serious like bacterial infection or viremia. Yep. But most kids don't need blood tests. Most kids don't need a chest X-ray. Another common thing is in adults, if you get a person with like tachycardia, you're going to do an ECG. Yep. But kids, we don't need to do that unless they've got like a persisting tachycardia despite, like I said, you know, correcting the fever, correcting the hydration, correcting the emotional distress. Yeah, okay. So most kids, you don't have to do much at all. Yeah, okay. Sounds good. Yeah, mainly just like a urine dipstick, maybe a finger prick blood glucose and ketones. Yep. All right. So um, let's go back to our two-year-old who we've been seeing. We're satisfied it's a viral erty. They've been drinking less than usual, but they've been maintaining two-thirds maintenance most of the day. So they don't need an NG tube or IVT. And there's no signs of a lower respiratory tract infection. And we're thinking they can probably go home um, because they've passed their trial of fluids as well. So what what do we tell parents? Kind of the things that we've already talked about. So I advise them the importance of hydration. One thing is kids will often go off their solids. I don't know if you've noticed that, David, like, Parents will come in, they'll be like, oh, yeah, he hasn't eaten anything. And I'm like, no, no, busy drinking. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. Yeah. 
And like, that's pretty normal. Um, but the main thing is as long as they're like drinking. There's some argument that in gastroenteritis, early reintroduction of solid foods help um, like heal the bowel faster, but they're going to get better eventually mm. anyway. Sounds good. So I really reinforce to parents the importance of hydration. Tell them to avoid water only because of the risk of like hyponatremia and hyperglycemia. So, you know, we're recommending hydrolyte, which tastes pretty gross, or like dilute juice and ice blocks. Yep. I advise them of red flags for representation and like, you know, tell them like have a low threshold to get their child. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So the main red flags I tell them is like if they've got severe lethargy, because that could be a sign of, you know, um, severe dehydration or, you know, um, meningitis, encephalitis or things like that. They've got increased work of breathing. If they've got severely decreased fluid intake or like half their wet, normal wet nappies, because that might be a sign they need to come into hospital for IVT or an NG tube. Um, if they've got like a fever for more than five days to come back. So for example, this kid's coming on day two of fever. It's probably an early, but I tell them like, if they're still having fevers after five days, you should come back as well. Sure. Or like any other acute concerns. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a very huge difference in the management of kids with adults. Uh, You know, nobody's going to get upset if you feel, if you admit the kid based on the fact that they're just a bit too far away from care. Yeah. uh, Or it's just not easy for the parents to represent if they need to. Nobody's going to get upset with that. Yeah, totally. Like we admitted a relatively well kid because... um the parents didn't have ambulance cover and they didn't have a car this week for whatever reason. And so safety-wise, it was like easier for them to stay overnight for monitoring. Exactly, which is just such a big part of pediatrics. I mean, if you're not sure, seek help. Yeah. The other thing as well is as you, I found like as I got more used to seeing kids, I had a better gauge of like, you haven't drunk that much today, but like I have a gut feeling like you don't really need this IV line. So like you can probably go home. Mm. Um, one thing is like, if they're like quite a bit younger, like under one potentially have a th- lower threshold for them coming in just cause they're like not as good at communicating when they're dehydrated. Yeah, absolutely. The other thing as well is kids will drink more during the daytime cause they're awake. So if I've got a kid, he's got very borderline fluid intake, but they're otherwise pretty well, like I'm much more willing to be like encouraging, like, oh, you know, go home, see how you go, come back tonight if there's a problem whereas if it's already like you know 10 p.m they haven't been drinking much sometimes it's easier like look it's already so late the kid's gonna sleep they're not gonna drink overnight come in and we'll consider doing a nasogastric tube overnight or like at least you know they're in a safe place yeah yep aside from red flags of representation um i give parents advice about um prn paracetamol and neurofin um, I told them, like, you know, the fever's not harmful, but if the child's reluctant to drink or they seem uncomfortable or flat with the temperature, like, definitely give it a go um, and see if, like, the paddle helps them drink. Yeah, sure. So a question that I get asked by parents all the time is, oh, can they have both Panadol and Nurofen? I thought it was just one or the other. Otherwise, it's just be too overwhelming for their tiny little bodies. Is there any truth to that? No, nah, I tell them, like, we give the both to kids all the time. Um, the other question that's like, similar to that I always get asked is, like, can they have them both at the same time? Yeah, agree. And I tell parents, like, my thought is, like, kind of do what you want. But also I usually say, like, look, if they get better with, like, just panel only, 
sometimes I say give that and then give ibuprofen later just because you know Panadol you can only give four times a day so then say if the kid gets grizzly in between the Panadol doses you can try the Nurofen yeah yeah. Whereas if you give them both at the same time, then like two hours later, you've got nothing. Yep. Sounds good to me. Yeah. Um, for SA practitioners specifically, um, these are some useful resources I've come across since starting PEDS. You might not all have access to this, but yeah, the Women's and Children's Hospital intranet has some really good parent handouts about ERTI and common myths about fever. The second resource I want to point people to is um, the Metropolitan Referral Unit or the Country Referral Unit. Um, have you used that resource before, Dave? Uh, no, I don't think I have. Tell me a bit more about that. Yeah, I didn't really know much. I mean, I was vaguely aware of it from Adult Land, but definitely haven't used it as much as I've had. I've done since um, PDD. But it's a community nursing service, and they have a pediatric-specific service where they'll visit the child at home and they can do a hydration status review or like a respiratory status review. Whoa. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So I often offer that to parents. I offer it for like kids who are like, you know, they don't need a nasogastric tube, but they're a little bit on the fence. Or if it's like their first child and the parents are really worried about going home. Or if it's like a kid that's like, for example, um, it's their first time having issues with like salbutamol and things. Then I, and like they're going to go home to like continue salbutamol for the next couple of days. I, I might refer so that there's some like nursing support make sure that they're using the right technique and things. Yeah. So that's basically what I do for 99% of the febrile kids that come into ED. Yeah, nice. That's really good, Esther. So maybe we'll just recap that. Yeah, sure. So if I'm understanding you correctly, basically if you have a sick kid come in with a fever, mm-hmm. uh, sorry, if you have a kid come in with a fever who is not in that neonatal period, older than three months or so. <laughs> Basically, the algorithm in my mind is, am I figuring that they've got an, a, a viral infection or they've got something more serious like a bacterial sepsis or Kawasaki's? If I think they've got a bacterial sepsis, I might need to do on the full-on workup and bloods and chest x-ray, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and they'll probably need to stay in hospital for treatment. If I'm pretty happy they don't have that because I've asked all the standard questions about where's the source of the infection, how severe is the fever, how long is the fever, then I'm looking towards things like do they need oxygenation, do they need fluids, and if the answer is no, then they're pretty safe place. If the answer is yes, then they may well need to come into hospital for oxygen or fluid replacement. And a straightforward way to figure that out is basically by giving them a trial of fluids and see if they pass that. Yeah, exactly. Great. Okay. Well, thanks. That was awesome. Uh, Looking forward to having you in the next couple of episodes as well to talk about common respiratory stuff with kids and other common uh, tips and life hacks that will get us through those patients that are not just little adults. (laughs) Yeah, hoping to do more episodes. And uh, a bit of banter for you, Dave. This was quite funny, actually. Because I was like, oh, I should probably write down some of these tips for like when my friend does this term next term. But then I was a bit lazy about it. Um, but I was in ED and like I talk to the ED consultants all the time about kids, like, you know, just a bit of extra safety netting and supervision. Yep. Um, and you, you'll find this quite funny. One of them, he like looked at me and he was like, hey, Esther, is your surname Lamb? And I was like, yes. <laughs> and he was like, is your brother that guy? 
And then I was like, you're going to have to elaborate, boss. <laughs> and he was like, the guy with the podcast. He like <laughs> lives in Port Lincoln or whatever. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's my brother. And then he was like, oh, yeah, I liked the podcast because I'm also a really simple guy. Also, I like that he swears on the podcast, you know, <laughs> makes it cool for the kids. <laughs> that was not my intention. Was- <laughs> the cursing is accidental. Apologies. <laughs> And I was like, "Uh uh-huh. And then he said, yeah, I hope you guys like record some more. Maybe you should feature on it. And then I was like, you've met me. I'm (laughs) awkward and not particularly charismatic, but I guess I have some useful tips and life hacks, if you would. So, uh, yeah, we wouldn't have this episode if it wasn't for my ED consultant, Anit. So, Anit, if you're listening to this episode, shout out to you. (laughs) Thanks, Anit. And yeah, thanks, Esther. Looking forward to having you on the next episode. Uh, And yeah, see you next time. You've been listening to GP Life Hacks with Dr. David Lamb. Music by Nathan Huiyi.